when you're thinking about whole body wellness and, and people feeling like they're in a, a good place, you're immediately transplanting them into a, a suboptimal situation where they're not working in at a standing desk with beautiful sunlight cascading onto them, but rather more they're trying to make do with being on a bed that all of a sudden seems completely unsuited for the task. everyone welcome back to on purpose the number one health podcast in the world thanks to each and every single one of you that come every week to listen to learn and to grow now i know that we've been focusing our friday episodes on supporting you and helping you during the pandemic and i've been reaching out to experts and thought leaders who can really give you the most practical tools right now that can make a change in your daily life we're all spending time indoors and that's a good thing stay safe stay at home you know, protect your healthcare systems wherever you are in the world listening. But how do we work from home? So many of us for the first time are working from home. How do we stay productive at home? How do we stay creative at home? And how do we deal with all of that uncertainty in our workplace, with colleagues, with meetings, with Zoom calls crashing and all the rest of it? Today's guest is going to help us figure out the most productive, effective, and thoughtful ways to work from home. His name is Bruce Daisley, and he was previously Twitter's most senior employee outside the United States in his role of vice president across Europe, Middle East, and Africa. He joined the company in 2012, having previously run YouTube UK at Google. He has also worked in the magazine publishing and radio industries, having got his first break by mailing a cartoon resume of his life to prospective employers. I can't wait to ask him about that. (laughs) Bruce's passion for improving work led to him creating the podcast Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat on making work better. It became a number one smasher in the UK, also hitting the top 10 in the US. So make sure you go check out Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat podcast as well. So excited to have Bruce on the show. Bruce, thank you for doing this. Oh, great to talk to you, man. Great, great. Strange times, but lovely to get the chance to chat. Yeah, it's interesting how all these strange times sometimes help you connect with people that you've either wanted to connect with for a while or you didn't know before. I just want to check in and make sure your family's good, everyone's healthy and safe. And where, where are you at the moment? I, I'm in London. So yeah, all is good. I mean, it, it's strange, isn't it? How I think we've all known some of the ways that we can connect with each other electronically. There's some of the ways that we can we can do things. But I saw someone saying last week there'd been 10 years worth of change in four weeks. And that's definitely the case. I was in the, uh, I was in the, the doctor's surgery about something routine today. And they told me they'd really quickly transitioned to video consultations. And I think that would only have gradually changed over the next few years. I suspect a lot of that won't ever change back now. So it's just fascinating how some good stuff has come from this extraordinary disruption that we're seeing. That's a really interesting point, actually. Yeah, I didn't think about it like that. You're, you're actually saying that because so much more of our communication has become digital at this time, a lot of it you don't actually see it going back. Which of the industries that you think have had the most impact of that happening and rapidly happening? Well, I think you're going to, there's a lot of change. I mean, look, you know, medical, uh, medical consultations is, is one of them. And if you've ever gone, you know, it, with whatever healthcare system you go to, but, you know, quite often the doctor's overscheduled or you find that you've been waited for a long time and then you only see him for a few moments. But actually, if you allowed people to, to consult by video, they probably can give more time. They can do it from where they are. So it's so a lot massive opportunity there. I think, you know, a lot of 
workplaces are finding that some of the ways that they did work now when they do them electronically just don't make sense so the stat that always blows me away is the average american worker and i think it's the same for everywhere around the world spends 16 hours a week in meetings now that's I know, 16. So, so oh, that's 16, one six, yeah, yeah. one six. One six. Yeah. So two <laughs> days a week in meetings. But when you transplant it to sort of like a Netflix style, you're watching it on your laptop, suddenly 16 hours a week seems never ending. It feels like I can't deal with this. So I think a lot of organizations are probably starting to wonder what was the way that we were doing things ready for a bit of change. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and today I really want to talk a lot about that because I know you've got such great insight. And I love the fact that you have so much research and data in the book as well. And, and I'm a big fan of, of research and human behavior and seeing how we interact. But tell us about, you know, for a lot of people, it's, it's interesting. We've always, ha- I feel like a lot of people for a long time have said things like, oh, I wish I could work from home. I, I wish I had that flexibility. But then when it gets forced upon us in this way, and then you don't have that freedom, Tell me about some of the challenges you're seeing people talk about right now about working from home that companies and employers are facing, but also individuals are facing as well. Yeah, I think, Jay, one of the big things is that people who can plan to work from home, people who can build their life around working from home have a very different experience than people who find that all of a sudden... They're, they're transplanted to having to work from home. So you you said you used to live in New York. You can imagine if you're a 20-something, a 30-something, maybe even uh, you know later in, in, in life, and you're suddenly told you have to work from home, you, you've probably got a couple of options. One, which is the, the, so, the couch, the sofa. One, which is maybe sitting on your bed. You, you possibly don't have like a desk. And so immediately, you're actually, when you're thinking about wellness, when you're thinking about whole body wellness and, and people feeling like they're in a, a good place, you're immediately transplanting them into a, a, a suboptimal situation where they're not working in at a standing desk with beautiful sunlight cascading onto them, but rather more, they're trying to make do with being on a bed that all of a sudden seems completely unsuited for the task. So I think that's one of the challenges, you know. One of the the critical things right now is that a lot of us have talked about working from home. A lot of us have talked about how remote working might transform things. And of course, what we're not doing right now is we're not doing a global experiment for remote working because almost every company is going to have its worst year in a decade. It's going to have really bad success. Anyone looking at the results of this will say it was an unmitigated disaster. So the challenge for all of us is to say, in this really uh, sort of suboptimal experience, what were the good bits that we learned from it? I chatted to someone uh, yesterday, and they said, "The they said um, uh, rule is now meetings are no more than thirty minutes. You f- feel free to put a block of time in your calendar where, if you've got homeschooling responsibilities, if you've got kids that need just feeding." that you're not also anxious that your video calls are going on. So I think a lot of us are, are realizing this is all about just about making do with what's going on rather than this is the dream future. But I think the critical thing we're all going to discover is be careful what you wish for. Because, you know, the, the idea of homeworking initially to a lot of us sounds like freeing. It, it sounds liberating. But if you look into the research of people who work from home, generally they are significantly more stressed than people who work from offices. 
And the reason why is that all of the little gentle social cues that we give, and it might be your boss smiling at you by the elevators, or it might be a colleague saying, hey, how's your weekend? All those gentle things, when they're taken away from us, they start changing our experience. They they start transforming our experience. Even the introverts amongst us, we're far more reliant on being charged up by those social interactions than we would ever admit. And so when you put someone, you transplant them to working, sitting on their bed in a a big built-up city somewhere, immediately the first thing that can suffer is people's well-being. And actually, it can it can end up being a journey into something that certainly doesn't feel like an improvement from where we were. Yeah, no, that's really well said. You've shared so many interesting insights there because I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I really feel that for, for a lot of people, working from home is definitely more stressful. And I'm glad that companies and teams are figuring out how you may have a 2 to 4 p.m. block in your day, which is homeschooling your kids or feeding or putting them to bed at a certain time or different time zones. Tell me about some of the ways you mentioned there a couple of things which I think stood out. Like you were saying, like talking to your colleague about, hey, what you got planned for the weekend or speaking to your boss and then, you know, like you said, smiling at you or whatever it may be. What are some of the ways that we can actually connect more humanly right now with our colleagues? Because I almost feel like, when conversations become purely email or, or purely audio or purely distracted calls, you start noticing that people also disconnect more. They do. Yeah. And so what are you, and, and you also feel like when you're talking to one of these, I mean, this is just me and you, and it's a podcast and we're both engaged and you know what you're turning up for and I know what I'm turning up for. But if you think about it, a lot of meetings when you're on Zoom, it's so easy for people to like disengage That's and right. you don't know whether they're listening and then the connection's bad. What is a good way that people can right now build stronger human connection with their colleagues and with people in their workplace? So I'm going to go one step back and I'm going to go give you it. a little bit of evidence because this evidence, I think, is fascinating for then how we answer that question. Sure. So there's a really inspiring guy at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, a guy called Sandy Pentland, Alex Pentland. And he was interested... I guess to some extent in the secret life of the office, if you've ever seen kids play a game of The Sims, he wanted to watch workplaces like a game of The Sims. Who's talking to who? Who's walking over? What emotions happened? So he did this really interesting experiment when when we were all in offices. He put badges on people and he said, right, here... He didn't even know what he wanted to track, but he just wanted to see whether he could measure it. Like sometimes you walk into a bar and there's a sports game on and they have like a heat map of where the players have been on the field. Yeah. He wanted to do the, a heat map of what was happening in the workplace. Anyway, he started watching. Very quickly, he said, oh, wow, I'm starting to learn uh, what goes on and what actually contributes to a creative workplace, what contributes to a productive workplace. Here's the strange thing he found. He found that emails account for about 2% of what gets done in offices. Meetings meetings account for about 3%. So that's when you're in the room with people, meetings are 3%. Face-to-face conversation accounted for about 37%. He said, I can look at this heat map of an office and I can tell you if this is a creative office by... Are people going over, is Bruce going over to Jay's desk and sort of saying, hey, I've, I've got a sort of slight idea and you wince and you sort of, mm, I'm not sure. Be careful before you take that to the big boss. And immediately I think, okay, okay, okay. It's not perfect. Right. But so what we learn about that is that even though if you did a spreadsheet of what 
creates value at work. Probably face-to-face conversation wouldn't even go on your list, but you realize that it's actually, it's often the com- conversations by the coffee machine. It's the conversation while you're just getting some, some copies made and you say to someone, hey, did you read that report? Did you read that email? What do you think of that idea? And normally those little bits of chit-chat, or it might be, did you watch that show on Netflix? Those bits of chit-chat turn into conversations about work. So then to transplant it to where we are now, you realize that this sort of this dark matter of work, which is all of the social interactions between us. And if you transplant to a world where we're all sitting on a Zoom call and you know, our inbox is looking so big that we think, you know, while I'm on this Zoom call, I'm just going to clear my inbox. And immediately, it's a bit like when you're, when you're sitting on the, the sofa and, and the Netflix show's playing and your partner or someone in the, in the house says to you, you know, do you, do you even know what's going on? And you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, and you don't, you don't know any of it. Like, you don't have a clue, yeah. yeah. And, and work's become like that. And immediately we find ourselves feeling like it's just getting too much for us. We're not feeling connected. The fascinating thing is that it seems that when we can forge these social links between us, and especially now when they don't casually happen, the the person on the desk next to you isn't going to ask you about your weekend. And so when those social things have gone, we need to try and find a way to bring them back. There was one piece of research I was really charmed by, which was, you might think it's unrelated, but it was looking at um, in the old world, in life before this, it was looking at couples who'd had uh, distant relationships. So this was, you know, the one of them's living in Chicago, the other one's living in New York. How do they sustain this? They looked at 40,000 couples who'd done the distance thing, and they tried to work out the ones who'd stayed together for 12 months. So these were unmarried couples. The couples who stayed together for 12 months were the ones who phoned each other old technology, analog. (laughs) They phoned each other every day to talk about trivial things. They phoned to talk about the cat. They phoned to talk about the weather. And what, what you discover is that even though we could never truly put a value to that, it seems to have this really powerful spiritual human connection to it. So then you're sitting there thinking, so what can we do right now in this strange situation to do that? I saw, I've been really interested just watching people's social posts about what works. And, you know, we've seen a lot of people using house party or Zooms to get together. I saw someone who works at the Huffington Post, Huff Post, and she said, you know, we probably... We, we probably feel embarrassed to admit it, but our favorite thing is we have a meeting at 11 a.m. on Monday morning where we get together and all with a coffee and we talk about the TV we watched over the weekend. <laughs> right. That's really interesting because all of us, so often we can find ourselves thinking, I need to be more productive. I'm failing unless I'm squeezing the last bit of productivity out of life. And what you miss in the gaps between that is you miss those moments of sort of nourishment that we get from other people. So mm-hmm. I think I think you know I would say learning the evidence of along the way there, thinking about how we can get more human connection. You know, I, I used to work in a, a technology job, and one of the things I was always asked is, "What do you think the future of work is?" 
And I always said, you know, I don't think the future of work is we're going to find the answer in technology. The answer is in humanity. How can we make us feel that technology has enhanced our experience of work? We feel more connected. We feel more creative. We feel like we're getting more done. And, uh, and those things are all about sort of humanity, far more than technology, I find. I, I think you're spot on. I, I feel exactly the same way, having worked at Accenture as well. And like, you know, my whole world was digital strategy and innovation and constantly looking at AI and AR and how that was going to change the workplace. And I feel exactly the same way as you, that it's all about the human connection. And I think you're so right that we need that moment of being able before we become productive or getting to the workday to have that moment just to decompress and just to kind of exchange a few you know I mean even just us before we started this podcast you know it's nice to connect with you know where I grew up and mutual friends we have and you know stuff like that just helps break the ice and we almost need it even with people weekly even if we know those people and we see those people and it's so easy to try and save that extra five minutes of productivity. But that extra five minutes of productivity costs you five days of, you know, relationships and getting things done well. Very much so. I saw this fascinating piece of research and this was done by some researchers at Oxford University. And it was, it was trying to work out the effects that we have on each other. So what they did is the researchers got a group of rowers, right? So these, you've seen them at the Olympics sort of... Yeah. Six foot, you know, very athletic. They've got a group of rowers and they put um, six of them individually on rowing machines, told them that they had to row for 10 minutes. They got a separate group and they put them on rowing machines, but they instructed them, they're familiar with this, you have to row like you're on a boat. You've got to be in sync with each other. So you've you've got to be feeling like empathizing with the people around you. Then they did, they, they got them to exercise for 10 minutes. Now, routinely, the amount of energy they burnt was about the same. But then they measured the endorphins, the pleasure hormones in these rowers' bodies. And they do this by they put a, an armband on them and they measure the endorphins. The ones who felt connected to each other, even though they'd all done the same amount of exercise, had twice the endorphin levels of the ones who didn't. And the strange thing about that is you sort of see that and you think, oh, that's fascinating. Where else could we observe it? Well, anyone who's ever sung in a choir endorphins you know the the fact that you're doing something synchronized with other people endorphins come anyone who's danced with each other will find endorphins you like people say all i did all night was dance and like my my energy levels i was just oozing it when people go to a comedy show if you laugh if you laugh you'll often find yourself talking to strangers coming out why because the endorphin levels are, are through the roof and then you start thinking okay so look the average day probably isn't gonna start with a song or a dance or a comedy routine but where else do these endorphin levels get triggered and they get triggered when we chat face to face with people our endorphin levels go up if we're in a group a smaller group and we laugh our endorphin levels going up and i think that connection to other people actually it's it's a really important part of us feeling like we matter like like you know the the things we do are having an impact on the people around us yeah no those are great ideas and that's why i think finding the best way to have those virtual workouts or virtual movie nights or virtual dinner dates with friends right now. It's just so needed, especially with colleagues as well, because I think it's so easy to think like, oh yeah, I work with my colleagues, 
And so we just talk about work stuff. But then when you think about the office, you're like, oh, no, actually, we used to talk about the football. Right. We used to talk about the TV or we used to talk about, you know, whatever it may be, the, the latest thing in the news. And we've stopped doing that. And, and also we forget that right now we may be doing that, but a lot of that conversation may be negative. So we're used to talking about the football or we're used to talking about the best TV, but now we're talking about the news or we're talking about COVID or we're talking about, we're now talking about the stuff that doesn't necessarily boost you or and, you know, enhance you. you. You talk about stuff that kind of stresses you out a bit more. It's important to still have those social conversations at work, which, which we're very used to. That's exactly right. I mean, there's a really interesting thing. When you look, I mentioned before that yeah. when workers work remotely, their stress levels are higher. And one of the ways that you can get around that is, is making sure that maybe you don't jump straight into the meeting content immediately. You know, you, your instinct might be that the moment that everyone's on the call, you cut all chat down and you, you jump straight in. But, you know, more than ever before, those moments where we turn and we say to everyone, hey, how, how's everyone doing in your office or, you know, in, in your city? How's everyone doing? How are you coping? You know, and, and those moments of sort of group connection, but also individual connection. If you're a leader right now, if you're, um, if you're a partner, if you're, if you're anyone, picking up the phone and, and, you know, spontaneously or even just, you know, uh, putting a FaceTime in, but spontaneously checking in with someone who is important and, and probably uh, would feel valued by you is an incredible act of yeah. altruistic leadership right now. I, I love that. And it's so true. I think picking up the phone to someone or FaceTiming them directly, not through a Zoom call or a Zoom link, it's weird because it can be the same thing. Yeah. But when, you, when someone feels that they've, you've called them from your phone yeah. and you're FaceTiming them, that feels so much more personal when it's not through a laptop or it's not through a, a work screen or a WebEx or any of those things. Because, and yeah, yeah go on, and go on. And there's probably people right now saying, hey, I don't want a call out of the blue. You know, I haven't put clothes on for yeah. a week and a half. I haven't washed my face. Absolutely. Send, a, send an SMS, send a text first saying, <laughs> yeah. saying you're okay for a quick call. And look at, and so it might not be a video call. You end up with a, just a phone call. But you're yeah. making sure that people's anxiety levels don't peak. But absolutely that moment where almost all you talk about is, hey, I'm going to phone you. Can you recommend me something to watch on TV? Yeah, and immediately exactly. you've, you're not going into the whole COVID, the whole, yeah. you know, the, the sort of getting groceries. You're not going into the, the logistics, but you're in a moment where you're just riffing about a great movie to watch. Yeah, and I think that's what it is. It's asking people. It's, it's also the questions we ask when we start our calls. I think, like you said, moving that conversation in a natural way of like, oh, what's the best movie you've seen? Or what's the best show you've been watching? Or, or you know, what's the best thing you've done with the kids? Or you it's, it's the solution-oriented conversation mm. or the entertainment-oriented conversation that I think helps. And people, whenever they ask me that, I, I feel like I was late to it. But I watched uh, recently, the movie came out in like 2013 or 2014. But I've been trying to find movies for me and my wife to watch. And I found this movie called Saving Mr. Banks with Tony Hanks, uh, Tom Hanks. Tony Hanks, Tom Hanks. And it, I don't know if you've seen it. It's, it's so, it's brilliant. Like it's become one of my favorite movies that I've discovered. And I talk about it all the time. And it's, you're so right. As soon as you talk about something that you've enjoyed, that also boosts your mood. And I think that's so important that, you know, finding something to talk about that makes you smile, that makes Absolutely. you get your best energy. 
And look, and I couldn't agree more. And right now, it's very easy for any of us to feel, you know, the whole of life is is filled with guilt. Mm. And we might end up sitting there thinking, I feel guilty that I've not read that great novel that I was meant to read. I feel guilty that I've not learned that language. And right now, I don't think we need to add any more guilt, any more burden to us. But if you can fill it with a bit of joy, you know what? I loved that movie as a kid. I'm going to introduce my housemate, my, you know, someone with me to that movie. Then I think it's probably a good time now, like you say there, to be reminded with things that just made us, simply made us happy. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me about one of, I, I think one of the biggest challenges that people feel working from home is that there, there's no barrier now between their work and their personal life. So they're in the same space they're eating lunch while they work. They're uh, sitting at the same couch, like you said, all day long. All of those types of experiences. And now you're still reading emails at 9 p.m. because you kind of feel like you have nothing else to do or you haven't seen the difference. What are good ways that people can separate their personal and their work life, if that's the right way of looking at it? Or what's the best way to navigate that whole challenge? Look, so, I mean, you know, I think one of the most important things that any of us can do right now is is try and think about our headspace and then have a dialogue with our managers because, you know, the person we report into and, you know, the truth about work is that there sometimes is a line manager lottery, that sometimes we work with really understanding, empathetic people, sometimes not so much. And so just, you know, understanding where your your manager's line set, mindset is at is really critical. Why? Because look, the situation we're in right now, maybe the best thing for your mental health is if you're still allowed to to go outside, you go outside when the sun is shining on your face and you can actually be filled with the glow of optimism that sometimes comes with a bit of nature. And of course, you know, if your boss is saying, I want you at the computer at nine and then, you know, clocking off at six, but then available afterwards, we're going to miss the glory of nature. And and nature can be, you know, sometimes they call it vitamin N. It can have this sort of magical quality of making us feel like um, things are going to be okay, that, that, you know, we, we can cope with situations. So I think the first thing that I would say for anyone is try and work out how you're going to get some balance into the way things are. And if your manager understands that, then all the better that you could say, hey, just so you know, I'm going to be take. I'm going to be doing my full hours, but I'm going to be taking uh, a break from twelve till two, so I can, you know, get some fresh air, so I can feed whoever I need to feed. But then I'm going to be back back on it and go do my full work. I think you know, as you say there, the dream that we're told really resolutely is draw a division, draw a line between working and and not working and i think more than ever before that's that's really important if we can get some escape and whether it's entertainment or music or whatever it is if you can get some escape from work then it can make the whole of the situation we're in right now feel less claustrophobic so i think more than ever don't be held to the rigidity of i need to be at my desk from all this time. If you get the opportunity to build some some relaxation, some some rest into that, it's gonna it's gonna number one, it's gonna make your work better, and number two, you're gonna leave this unique situation <laughs> the better for it, stronger for it. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I know that two things that really helped me, like one of the best ones for me, and this really, truly, it doesn't matter how big your apartment or your home is. I, I used to live in a 600 square foot apartment in New York, which is, which is very small for two people. And, and in that apartment, I was able to find different spaces for different things. It, it could literally be a corner. And so I really believe that it's important to have a lunch space, like where you go and you eat your lunch calmly. It will only take 10. By the way, if you eat your lunch and that's all you do, it will take 10 minutes. And so when you're trying to eat your lunch while you're reading an email and trying to type at the same time, guess what? You're not digesting properly. You're not reading that email properly and you're not being efficient or productive. So I really believe in having a space to eat. It could be a breakfast bar table, whatever you have. I really believe in having a space to work. It could be the edge of the same table. It could be a corner of your home. I really believe in having a place for entertainment. Even if you're in a studio apartment, it's still important to kind of create zones and spaces mm. because your mind gets used to that. There's a reason why your mind can't, you know, and this is what I find a lot of people say to me, like when they can't sleep and I say, well, what else are you doing in your bedroom? And they're like, oh, well, I eat my dinner in my bedroom and I watch TV in my bedroom. And I'm like, well, that's why you can't sleep in your bedroom because your whole bedroom is surcharged with that energy of being stimulated. Whereas when you only sleep in your bedroom, it helps you fall asleep. When you wear, like when sometimes people say like, oh, well, I can't sleep at night. And so what do you wear? Well, I'm just wearing the clothes I wore all day or I wore the clothes I wore to the gym. That's the same clothes that you did activity in. It's harder to sleep. Putting on, there's a reason why we have pajamas or a pair of shorts or whatever it may be that you put on when you go to sleep because it feels like a sleep uniform. It helps you disconnect from the day, taking off that feeling. So I really recommend people to find zones in their home and, and feeling like, even if it is just your upper half, getting dressed for work and then taking off your work clothes. There's a reason why we've been doing that for so many years. We know when you take the jacket off, when you get off at the end of the day, that work is over. It's so important to keep those habits moving, even if you're in the same space. You hit on something really critical there as well. You, you mentioned sort of, you know, zoning your activities, taking a break, going to sit for food. And there's just incredible research on, on the importance of taking breaks. You might know this, but, you know, the worst time to find yourself in court is just before lunch. Why? <laughs> because, because judges are more judgmental, they're more critical, they're more likely to find you guilty because they're angry, they're frustrated. Or, um, you know, school children, uh, pupils at school, if you give them a break every hour, their results go up during the course of the day. If you don't give them a break, their results go down. But the worst performing kids, their results go down more than everyone else's. So breaks have this sort of incredible energizing quality for us. And if you say to yourself, look, you know, we, we all need a bit of structure. But if you say to yourself, you know what, I'm getting up from here and then, you know, I'm going to work for an hour, then I'm just going to stretch my legs, grab a coffee, look out the window, just trying to get a bit of, of break time built into your routines has this effect of just keeping your energy ticking along. Yeah, no, no, that's that's really interesting insight. And and that one hour, what counts as a break, Bruce? Like, tell me what's a good break? Because I think when people hear the word break, they're like, well, what do I do in my break? And most people turn to browsing on social media or get lost in the news. What counts as a break? So you're saying every hour, we perform better when we have a break every hour. How long is a good recommended break? And what do you do with that break? Yeah, well, the, the, the inter- there is some research into uh, who, when the most productive people, how they manage their time. And generally they work for 50 minutes and then they take 20 minutes off. So, you know, <clears throat> so the, the idea is actually the, the idea that we, we're meant to be sort of working relentlessly probably is a little bit unrealistic. And, and generally what you discover, 
you know, my lesson into this was that I used to be one of those guys who would eat lunch al desco. And, you know, I would be sitting at my desk, pecking my computer keyboard with a sandwich in hand. And I just realized at the end of the day, I was spent. You know, that feeling where someone asks you something and you just sort of stare through them. You're not really responding. And I was finding that was my situation, that burnout, that exhaustion. I was finding that was my situation. For me, the critical thing was getting a bit of structure, you know, and that was in, in a normal world of work, just setting myself a goal, you know, three days this week, I'm going go to I'm gonna go outside to the park at, at lunchtime or I'm going I'm to do something that punctuates the routine. And what you discover pretty quickly from it, you know, right now, depending on where you are, maybe you're allowed to go to parks, maybe you're allowed to exercise. If you say to yourself, oh, I'm going to do my exercise at lunchtime or I'm going to, I'm going to walk to the grocery store today rather than drive there and, and just trying to get a little bit of color and variation, it often helps us feel like every day isn't quite the same. It might be as well. You say, look, I'm going to phone a parent, a friend, a, a, a family member on that walk. And immediately it's become, oh, you know what? I had such a lovely time. I had a 30-minute walk. I chatted to my my mom, you know, so trying to fill your, um, what otherwise can feel the same. You know, we're weeks yeah. into this now and, and it just becomes a blur. No one knows what day it is. No one knows what month it is. I've got a vague sense of season. You know, so we're, we're in this zone where just, putting a bit of punctuation actually helps. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that as well. I think changing it up every day with whatever it may be. And like you said, breaking up with a call or a walk or something indoors that you can take as a break is a really powerful way of doing that. What are, one of the things I think people struggle with is if someone already has a pretty poor relationship with their boss or with their work colleagues now can feel like a really toxic time because you already had stresses on you and now you feel even more stressed out how does someone navigate that and i know you've done you're you've been a leader inside large organizations managed you know multiple employees people i I think a lot of employees may be struggling with that right now how would you guide them to talking to their managers right now their colleagues to help ease any of those stresses that existed from before yeah, you're completely right. And especially because a lot of organizations are furloughing employees and, and maybe, you know, you've you've survived a round of cuts and you're worried unless you seem to be working hard, it'll be your turn to go next. Absolutely. These these things are a, re, a reality for all of us. I think the critical thing is that, you know, we've all got to try and understand what our manager's expectations are. And, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes those expectations are unreasonable, but understanding what our bosses, no matter how unreasonable they are, so we at least know, right, this is what's accepted, expected from me. Because my focus would, would be right now, anyone listening, watching, consuming this would be thinking, how am I going to look after me? And then it becomes, of course, a, a, an assault course. Can I reconcile those two things? Can I feel like, okay, my boss needs to see that I'm online, what's the best way for me to make him happy with that without me burning out? And that might be, you know, just keeping an eye on emails while you actually take a break and you're sort of, you're you're resting yourself. And look, I I don't think there's any easy solutions to this because quite often our, you know, our managers can haunt us. I, uh, I, I did some work at the start of the year trying to understand what people considered the best part of their job and the worst part. 
best part was always the people. People said, you know, if they've got colleagues that they laugh with every day or every week, they've got people who seem to be looking out for them. It really brings some, some meaning to the jobs they do. Worst part of our jobs for so many of us is our boss. And so, you know, I, I can't bring a magic wand to solve that. But I think more than anything, we probably need a coping strategy. What can we do to deal with a good or bad boss? If we've got a good boss, boss, then, you know, a good boss who sort of facilitates honest dialogue. If you can say to your boss, I am feeling overwhelmed today. Listen, I'm going to get my work done, but, you know, I'm not going to be online all day. Wow, what a great boss that will gift you that because probably the work will be better and, and, uh, and everyone will benefit from it. I recognize, though, not every boss is unfortunately cast in that mold. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's just worth hearing your words on that because I think, like you said, there isn't a, you know, there isn't any fairy dust for a situation yeah. like that. What was your experience in Accenture? Because, I mean, that must have been like a very demanding environment. Yeah, so it was it was fascinating. I was there at a really, really interesting time when Accenture was moving into doing a lot of digital and innovation work. So we actually used to spend a ton of time at uh, Google UK and, and uh, other organizations trying to learn from them and, and gather insight. And I found that the space of the business that I was in, the leaders I had, were very forward-thinking fantastic, and, and were able to really push the boundaries. So there were, there were a couple of managers that I remember, not managers, I mean, they were execs, but uh, there was a lady named Jilly Bryant, who now I believe is at EY, and then another lady named Sarah Bentley. And both of them were just incredible leaders that were very forward-thinking, very much strengths-based, very open. And, and Accenture was moving in that direction of that culture. Uh, I think it had it was very much clear about what the culture had been in the past and everything. But there were, and and this is why it all comes back to what you said. It's always the people. It's I, I I feel like it isn't companies. It is the people. It's individuals. It's managers. And and I'd say this to any managers or leaders or CEOs or entrepreneurs listening right now. It's it's your responsibility to create that feeling and take that step out and not follow the trend that your company may have had or that your management may have previously had. You can change that culture, right, to some degree. But you actually talk about company culture being a myth, Bruce, and I, that fascinates me. And, and I wanted to ask you, why are you so sure of that? And what does that mean to you? Because, yeah, yeah. That, that, um, that's yeah, really I mean, Well, for me, um, the idea that we feel connected to the people around us is unequivocally the case you know it's, it's it's one of those things that as we're evaluating time you know we very rarely say that if someone asks us to to describe our formative years we very rarely say you know i'm the person i am today because i had that incredible holiday in hawaii i'm the person i am today because i bought that new car we, we more often talk about like the challenges we had the, the, the issues we had to overcome. And when people talk about great workforces, they very rarely say, you know, that was an incredible place. We, we got free smoothies. Or they very rarely say that was an incredible place. <laughs> yeah. 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 They, but they often say, you know, that was an incredible place. The people there were just yes. like inspirational. So no doubt all of us can feel a, a, a sense of something larger than ourselves, a sense of purpose, mission from the people we work with. It just often doesn't happen at a company level. And you, you might have recognized this when, when you were working at a big corporate, that quite often you'll feel a real affinity with the six, seven, eight, ten people around you. But then a message will come from head office 
and everyone rolls their eyes and like, oh man, what are they thinking? Why? Because that's generally what happens. When we feel that things are outside of our control, when we feel like we've got no agency, autonomy over them, we start believing oh, that it's been mandated by a bad person out in the, in the <laughs> Now, it seems then, so what could we learn from this? It's a bit like saying, okay, that you've, you've got all these NBA teams, but uh, there's going to be an NBA culture that all of the teams are going to have. All of the NBA teams would say, no, 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 we've got our culture. We, we don't. And then it comes from on high. The new culture is this. What happens is that either people reject it and they say, I'm not having anything to do with that, or they pretend to go along with it. Now, yeah. most of us don't have the power of NBA players. So most of it, the rule comes along from head office. This is the new culture. We're going to be like this. And everyone just thinks, you know, I'm hoping to get a mortgage approved next year. And I'm, I'm hoping to, you know, to be able to afford a, a, a nice vacation next year. I'm just going to go along with this. And that's what happens. You lose all of that magic, which was you and the gang and the people doing something and feeling like you were getting something done. And you lose it to people feeling like, I just need to go along with what head office is saying. And so that's the difference. Generally, when you observe, and it might be a, a sports franchise, it might be, a, it might be like a, a, a small team that you're working with. Generally, when you observe where people say, I love these people, they're talking about a cluster of really small people who they had a personal connection with. They spoke to them most days. It generally doesn't happen that you have exactly the same culture between the Cincinnati office and, and the, you know, an office in Houston. Why? Because the people are different, their lives are different. And actually, we shouldn't try to force people to, to feel like they have to go along with, with a, a culture that's consistent. Celebrate the weirdness. Celebrate the quirks. Yeah. Let the team in Boulder be different to the team in Boston. I think yeah. that's the critical thing. That's a, that's a really unique point. And, and one of the things that stands out from what you're saying is that is that feeling of most people just roll their eyes because they're like, oh, here we go again, because it's just another update, mm. right? It's, it just feels like another mandate, another update. And actually, none of us like, all of us generally have some sort of, uh, some sort of challenge with authority when we feel we're not involved in that decision-making, right? Like when you, when you feel Absolutely. Yeah, we have that. Yeah, go on. And in any, in any sense, when people feel like they have no control, look, you can observe this. The most extreme versions of this is when you've got extreme hierarchy. Now, that might be in the animal kingdom. You know, the, the animals who are the alphas will be sort of very positive, expressive. Um, <coughs> Amy Cudi did an incredible TED talk on this. The, you know, power has this disinhibiting impact on us. You know, people who, in, who people in power or animals in power have this disinhibited behavior. People who don't have power. So us, when a message comes from head office, we become a little bit withdrawn. We, we sort of, we hesitate, we stutter when we, we're saying something. We stammer over words because we, we're worried that we might cause offense. And these things, they might not seem necessarily like they have a, <coughs> a direct bearing on our job, but really they have a big impact on the way we feel, the way we're able to express ourselves. And so when these messages come from on high, when, when head office sends a, a new directive, what effectively happens is people fall out of love. <coughs> people fall out of love a little bit with their jobs where they feel, um, I'm not really able to, to bring my own ideas. 
Yeah. If there was one hack or tip or tool or principle from your book that you'd want everyone to start practicing today that you feel would really benefit them right now during this pandemic, what would it be? What would be your, your tip or practice that people could do? Back in the day, I had a bad <laughs> boss who said to me, Jay, you wandered past one day. He said, uh, now's not the time to be seen laughing. Oh, wow. Right. Okay. 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 And there's so much sort of implicit threat in that. I'm, you know, I wasn't fully, fully sure. And, and his take was that, you know, he'd walked past and he'd seen a few of us goofing around laughing, you know, couldn't even remember what it was. He said, now's not the time to be seen laughing. And it really struck me as a found myself. So I, I wrote this sort of book about workplace culture, largely to try and get my workplace back into a good place? What are the specific actions I could take? And it was like, it was reluctantly, as I was finishing the book, I thought, you know what? I need to go and have a look at laughter because if laughter is this, actually this bad thing that distracts us from work, at least I can give people the, the ins and outs. And what yeah. you discover is that far from it, laughter. So if you chat to firefighters, if I was, if I was a firefighter, if I was a combat soldier, and you, you ask me about every day, combat soldiers, you know, we often see them when they're in switched on mode. But, you know, combat soldiers will say, we used to spend hours laughing every day. Firefighters, one of the stress, most stressful jobs, emergency services to any extent. And they'll say, we laughed all day, every day. And then and you uh, say, I chatted to a firefighter. I said, do you mind me asking, did you ever discuss what you laughed about with family and friends. And they said they would be horrified what we laughed about. Why? Because you start looking into it. Laughter is an incredible thing to reset our resilience. You might have been through trauma, but the fact that you're able to sort of, sometimes there's a darkness to the humor, but the fact that you're able to turn to someone and say, you know, and make a joke of it. What you discover is that, um, I was so honoured to talk to the world's leading expert on laughter, a man who passed away at the end of last year, a wonderful man called Robert Provine. And the reason why I say he was the world's leading expert on laughter, he said to me, there's around 100,000 scientific peer-reviewed papers on anxiety and depression and around 125 on laughter. So we just don't study laughter because the scientists think it's trivial, it's sort of unimportant. Anyway, he, he studied laughter and he said, so fascinating this, he said um, he went into workplaces, he went into, into various places. Well, firstly, he sat down, he put some strangers together and he showed them comedy videos. And he, what he learned very quickly was strangers plus comedy does not equal laughter. <laughs> and and like it was like baffled why aren't people laughing he learned very quickly the reason why people laugh is that he discovered he said laughter is like a um he he used the phrase an impoverished human bird song meaning that okay it doesn't sound as beautiful as a bird song but we laugh to for to signal connectedness to each yeah. other you get together with your family you've not been seen you go back to london you see your family jay i guarantee there'll be laughter in the room yeah has something funny happened? No, it hasn't. But you're sort of laughing. You're, you're laughing expressively. You're signaling to, togetherness. And so you look at it and you go, so laughter signals togetherness. Laughter resets our resilience. Um, laughter just seems to be like this magical thing. So when my boss walked past me saying, now's not the time to be seen laughing, actually, maybe he couldn't have been more, more wrong. And so that's what I'd say to everyone right now. 
that sometimes if you're living alone in an apartment and you're seeing no one and this this sort of this rule that you can't get together is just feeling like it's beating you up then finding opportunities to maybe you know it might be really awkward to have a zoom quiz with friends <laughs> maybe you're not that guy maybe you're not that woman who loves that but finding a way to build a bit of levity a bit of laughter into your routine seems to be just about the 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 tip number one for all of us right now that's a brilliant piece of advice Bruce I've not heard that from many people right now and I think you're right a lot of us feel guilty for laughing that's right like it's hard to laugh right now like everything basically what your boss said I, I think you know like everyone would feel like now's not the time to be seen laughing it feels like it's too serious and actually we're wrong because sometimes it's that laughter and that that not casualness, but that laughter and just that levity, as you said, that gives us the space to be more productive, effective, useful, supportive, loving, and, and everything else that comes from that. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, I love that. So that's Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, Bruce's book and podcast. And in his book, he gives 30 evidence-based ideas for improving work uh, and how you actually can silence the bullies who say lunch breaks are for wimps, who celebrate overwork, we all know people like that, and constant connectivity, or who think that workplaces should be filled with fear and anxiety rather than chat and laughter. So if you want to infuse some more laughter, love, and, and levity into your workplace, eat, sleep, work, repeat is great. You can get it on Amazon right now, right, Bruce? That's the best That's place. right. That's right. Yeah. Or, you know, if you're an audible, uh, if you're an audiobook person, then... Yeah, it's, it's available on that too. Yeah, amazing. So we've got two segments left for the end of the interview, Bruce. I ask you a bunch of really quick questions and you give me really quick answers. So this is called fill in the blanks. So you've got to fill in the blanks at the end of the sentence. So the first one is, a great workplace starts with? Yeah, uh, trust, I think. Nice, I agree. Second one, being at work should never uh be anxious yeah you'll be happier at your office if you feel connected with your colleagues (laughs) (laughs) that's good smart i like that uh what impresses me most about humans is their ability to adapt yeah i agree Uh, a great leader will always um believe positive motivation in their team yeah wonderful okay here are your final five so that was great that was filling the blanks you did really really well very quick answers only one pass now this final five is one word to one sentence answer so you get a bit more wiggle room uh questions so here we go with your final five so the first one i'm going to ask you is the one company you feel is doing an outstanding job with the values they have in place and and how how you think their company comes across yeah, right now I'm 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 interested in organisations that are very focused on doing the right thing for their workers, for the right thing to try and um, really sort of build trust. I, I um, you know, it, it's hard in the situation we're in right now, and I'm based in the UK to not look at health workers and be inspired with just the the fact that people who work in that industry are never defeated and you know they run towards fire when they see it it's hard not to be you know we all talk about mission we all talk about getting purpose in our jobs but when you when you witness that 
it's it's inspiring. It's inspiring to to observe people who are doing a hard job and and seem to to relish doing it. Amazing, awesome. Second question: What have you been chasing in your life that you no longer pursue? What's something that you used to pursue that not not important anymore? You know, I'm fortunate that I've never. Um, been too preoccupied with material things so i don't own a car i don't own a watch um so i've, I've ne- never been preoccupied with those things so i'm, I'm i feel i'm fortunate with those things um y- yeah i mean right now all of us are reminded that seeking vacations somewhere exotic <laughs> isn't something that we uh, we can do right now so i'm I, I think i'm fortunate that i try and keep a degree of balance there Cool. What do you believe 100% about work that other experts or other thinkers would disagree with you on? What's a belief you have about work that other people don't seem to agree with? Yeah, you know, it's, it, it might be a downer, but uh, I believe work's going to get worse, not better. And I think mm-hmm. quite often work experts will come and they'll, they'll talk about how things are going to improve. Here's one strange thing and terrifying thing. So we've got these wonderful devices in our pockets that have, have you know, we, we've been fortunate that these phones have transformed our lives and they're, they're magical. But what they've done is they've added two hours a day to the working day. You know, our parents had more balance than we did, uh, you know, and we've created work that we can never escape. And in truth, I think there's a, there's a degree of lowest common denominator about these things that, you know, your, your company is only as strong as the worst person in it. And if your yeah. boss wants you to be online, you know, one piece of evidence is that if your company expects you to stay connected to email, you're online 70 hours a week to work. Mm. And, you know, it's no wonder we're in the middle of a burnout epidemic, but I don't see it getting better in the short term. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, Let's hope you're not right, but, 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 but no. yeah, I mean, it is the reality. We have to face the truth. And maybe if we face the truth, we'll actually get better at dealing with it. That's exactly it. You yeah. know, it's a strange thing that these, because the burnout ec- epidemic that was sweeping through uh, sure. offices was starting to afflict bosses. Mm-hmm. So like there's been famous cases of CEOs burning out of other people. Mm-hmm. It's afflicting bosses, it's starting to get onto the agenda. When it was just younger workers or low-status workers or, or uh, workers who had no control burning out, then it didn't seem so relevant. As it's now afflicting everyone, maybe it is gonna, maybe there is hope. Yeah, for sure. Okay, last two questions. Uh, let's do this one first. If you could create a law that everyone in the world would have to follow, what would it be? <laughs> um, um you know a law that everyone would have to follow i think i i would love to introduce a a no email at weekends rule oh that's a great law a a no fly zone across weekends that's a great law (laughs) and so um you get punished if you if you break it you you get you know maybe you get a a pass you get one one email a year that you can send (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Something disastrous has happened. You give it one. <laughs> okay. And fifth and final question of the interview. What was your biggest lesson that you've learned from the last 12 months? You know, um, yeah, I, I think the strange thing is we've seen our whole lives dismantled, right? And the strange thing about that is had someone said to you, 
this is what's going to happen. Three months ago, six months ago, at the turn of the year, you'd go, no way, no way, no way. I, I was in, the, you know, just as things were closing down, I said to a friend of mine, if you said everyone is going to receive the news that they can't go out and everyone was going to abide by it, you'd have gone, no, people don't read the news anymore. People don't watch the news. And the streets were empty. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think we've learned that far more about life is negotiable than we realize. Yeah. And I would hope that there are going to be some brilliant inventors, some creative people, some inspirations who are going to take the opportunity that that presents and run with it. Yeah. Great answer, Bruce. I love that answer. Thank you so much, everyone. Bruce Daisley, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Grab the book, listen to the podcast. And Bruce, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I know it's late over there in the UK, so I really, really appreciate you staying up and taking away time from family and other things for doing this for us and sharing it with my audience. Jay, your inspiration. So I'm so grateful for the, for the invitation to come. Now, awesome. And where's the best place people can follow you? Is it Twitter? Is it Instagram? Is it where's, where's the best place? Yeah. People can find you? Uh, you know, Instagram, you generally get uh, nice photographs of flowers that I've seen, but uh, on Twitter or LinkedIn, you can, you can hit, hit me up there. Perfect. Everyone go and check out Bruce there. Bruce, thank you so much again today. Can't wait to share this episode. And thank you everyone for listening. Make sure that you share your insights, your takeaways, tag me and Bruce in your posts on Instagram and Twitter so that we both know what are the takeaways, what are the practice, what are the principles that you'll be putting into action this week. Thank you again for listening. Sending lots of love to you and your family. Thanks again. Thanks, Bruce. That was awesome. Legendary. Thank you, man.